often put off, like fixing up our homes and gardening. In many cases, growing our own fruits and vegetables. Well, joining us now with some tips for how to go about that is Pete Moraski, an environmentalist and nurseryman, nurseryman, and the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York. He's a regular on our show. Because we are temporarily prevented from working out at uh, out of our regular studios, we can't take your calls today. But we would love to hear from you. So if you have a gardening question for Pete Morosky, please write to us at leonardlopate at wbai.org. That's leonardlopate, one word, at wbai.org. Hello, Pete. Welcome back to our show. Thanks, Leonard. Are your customers at the Garden Center asking you different kinds of questions than they have in the past? Well, they have, Leonard, and they're looking to learn a lot more today than they have wanted to learn in the past, which sounds a little funny, but a lot of our customers today have become do-it-yourselfers because, as you know, most people are home, and they want to learn a little bit more about the outside world. I mean, gardening and landscaping is one of the top leisure activities in this country right now, and, uh, you know, People want to know what to plant and how to plant in their garden, and they don't want to make too many mistakes because buying the wrong plant and having it die can get very expensive. So they're coming in, they're asking a lot of questions about their site and what would work best with their site, and there seems to be a little bit of a twist to what they're asking this year in a sense that um, a lot of people are asking for more of an edible landscape and that we're directing them to more uh, to plants uh, like fruit trees and shrubs and a lot of the canes uh, that produce uh, fruits and vegetables and that seems to be the direction everybody would like to head this year you're talking about things like uh, fruit and nut trees shrubs canes ground covers uh, shad mulberry pawpaw uh, and native, and native shrubs like elderberry, blueberry, and beech plum. But, for example, weren't pawpaws among the most common trees in the area at one time? Why have they largely disappeared? Well, that's a very good question, Leonard. I don't think that many of the uh, the growers have have been propagating them because, uh, you know, up till recently uh, they haven't been that popular. But now. Um, everybody's asking for them. And, you know, one of the things that I tell my customers about the pawpaw tree is you must have patience with the pawpaw. And I say that because um, it takes anywhere between four and eight years uh, to, to, for a pawpaw to reach maturity and flower and cross-pollinate. Now, cross-pollination is another trick, okay? We, they need to cross-pollinate with another pawpaw tree that is genetically different from this tree. And I say that because, you know, a lot of these growers create, uh, you know, create these trees from cuttings. And if all these cuttings are, are the, genetically the same tree as the mother tree, then we're really not cross-pollinating. We're, we're trying to cross-pollinate with the same exact tree, but that's not going to work. We need to find trees that are genetically different uh, to get flower and fruit on the pawpaw tree. So you're saying it's a, it's a version of plant incest if you use cuttings from the same tree. 
Well, exactly, and that's what a lot of these growers do, and I'm a, and I frown upon it a little bit, you know. It, it, it takes away the biodiversity of of a lot of plants, you know. A lot of a lot of our a lot of our, uh, lot of our uh, pl uh, plants are. Are, are from the same plant, so uh, you know they'll they'll put out fifteen or twenty different types, uh, you know, fifteen or twenty cuttings from the same plant, and and you're really not creating biodiversity. It's basically just the same, you know, the same plant uh, being genetically uh, 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 from you know. I don't know. That phone call just came in and messed me up a little bit. But somebody really wants to talk to you, Pete. <laughs> Anyway, uh, it's not it's not biodiversity that's creating that 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 would, it's biodiversity that we're trying to bring into the to the landscape, not uh, genetically the same plant because if it's susceptible some, to some kind of disease or um, or or insect uh, problem, it's not going to go away. Now you say that the important thing to remember is growing the right plant in the right location. Is that what's called permaculture? No, no, no. Um, uh, the right plant in the right location is that um, if you got, uh, let's say you got soil that's a little bit wet uh, or hydraulic, and, um, you know, it needs to have a plant that is, a, is adapted to that particular soil, like a swamp azalea or a, a winterberry holly or something of that sort, okay? Permaculture basically is, 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 is basically a way of life. Uh, permaculture uh, uh, takes this whole ecological landscaping, which is just one part of it, but it, 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 it's, it, you know, it goes deeper into more of uh, you know, setting up your property with trees that produce nuts, uh, uh, and then smaller trees that produce fruit, and then also gaining uh, water from from uh, downspout drains and different things like that. Uh, and 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 it's all it's all about creating a a a a, a type of um, uh, uh, I don't know what's the best way of putting it. Uh, you know, to to make your property as sustainable as we, as you can with with the least amount of carbon footprint is what permaculture is all about. Does this all require a lot of work? I don't think so. Once it's set up correctly and once, once you do a study of your property and figure out what type of soil you have, what type of exposure you have, and you bring in the right plants, it kind of takes care of itself. It's like doing a native landscaping or ecological landscape. It's just finding out the science behind what's going on in your garden and, uh, and, and, and then you know, implementing it on your property, which creates less pesticides, fertilizers, and water. It's, 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 it's kind of, you know, it's what we do here at Native Landscapes is create ecological friendly gardens by using the science behind what's going on in your yard. The last time you were on our show, it was with Douglas Tallamy, who's written books about uh, his concerns about the, uh, the ecology. Uh, and he's been very critical of large lawns. Are you as well? I am. Uh, I think uh, large lawns is, is, is a waste of money and a, and a, and a waste of energy. I think, uh, you know, some young families need lawns because their kids play soccer or lacrosse or baseball uh, or and, and, you know, they need a little bit of lawn to play in. But 
beyond that, uh, I think our property should be more environmentally friendly. You know, convert some of that lawn on the edge of your property into meadow, uh, and it, it could be as simple as letting the grass grow or, um, you know, cutting that grass down in the fall and about a month from now and incorporating, you know, native wildflowers and grasses so that not only are you creating an ecologically friendly yard, but you're also bringing in some beneficial insects and, and, and birds uh, that, for me, create a, a quality of life. You know, you can observe them from the windows. And you create a garden like this, you don't have to bring in um, a lot of uh, bird feeders. Uh, you know, the, the, the plants will do it themselves for you. Now, a lot of towns and, uh, and even cities uh, require people to maintain a lawn in front of the house if they have that kind of space. Uh, you, you think that's bad government policy? Uh, I think that it needs to be changed, Leonard, and it's, it's funny that you bring that up because I did about two or three years ago convert a lawn uh, in, in one of my landscape customers, and she just recently got a letter from the town saying that uh, there's a code in place where they have to keep uh, a lawn and, and, and not what he quoted was kind of a, a, a weedy mess. I think... I think people need to understand and they need to be educated on why this concept is so important. Uh, you know, it's, you know, a lot of our, a lot of these chemical companies have forced us to believe that a monoculture lawn and a short lawn without any uh, broadleaf in it is the direction we need to go. And I, I, I couldn't disagree more. I mean, what's wrong with a biodiverse lawn? What's wrong with a lawn that has some violets in it and has some flower growing up through it? I'll tell you what, putting down these nasty chemicals uh, is, is, is a lot more of a problem than just letting the lawn go and becoming what I would call a, a short miniature perennial garden in our lawn. And I want to get to those nasty chemicals in a little while, but I want to get back to some of the things that you suggest that uh, we can grow, whether we have a lot of space or even a little bit of space. And, and that includes things that we can eat like straw, I mean, like blueberries and elderberries and blackberries. Are they native right. to this area? That's right. You know, uh I think that, you know, the new thinking in rather just planting a traditional garden of, um, you know, Euonymus and Barberry and, and Myrtle and Pachysandra, I think it's time that we should all look out of the box and maybe uh, incorporate many of these edible plants right into our foundation planting. Uh, you know, the old thinking was to create a structured vegetable um, or, or, or um, a shrub, uh, uh, you know, and have fruit trees, an orchard-type garden. But now the thinking is, because a lot of these properties aren't as big as they could be, in order to make this work on a smaller piece of property or a postage stamp type property, I think we need to look at what we can do to incorporate a lot of this edible landscaping and, and, and to make our property, you know, a, a little bit more sustainable and edible. And, you know, one of the things I recommend is, you know, rather than putting up a weeping cherry at the end of your property, you know, why not uh, uh, put a pawpaw or, or, or an elderberry or some kind of tree or shrub that is not only beautifully ornamental, but also creates a berry and, and, and a fruit on it. 
Um, and I think that would make, that seems to be the direction everybody's headed. And and it goes right down into annual plantings. Rather than doing drifts of annuals in, in the front of our garden, what's wrong with doing a drift of carrots or a drift of broccoli uh, or a drift of radishes in our home landscape? You know, they have beautiful foliage. I mean, the carrot foliage, foliage is beautiful. And not only are we creating a beautiful, you know, landscape, but we're also creating an edible landscape at the same time. Did people plant Barbary and Pakistandra simply because they uh, are easy to grow? They're, they're not indigenous to our uh, to uh, to the the, uh, the northeast of, of the United States, are they? Are no, they even not. indigenous to the United States? Um, Barbary and Pakistandra, you know, a lot of this, a lot of these traditional landscapes um, create, uh, were created by our ancestors based on, you know, where they were from. Like a lot of Europeans came to the United States and then we put in a lot of lawns because that's what you saw in Europe. Okay. There's also a big influence uh, from Japan and, and China because our, our climates are very similar to theirs. So you've got a lot of plants coming in from the Orient, like the, the Japanese uh, Pakisandra. Now they were brought in obviously from Japan and uh, you know I'm not going to tell you that they're ugly plants uh, but I'm going to tell you that they have no ecological significance for instance uh, you know many of our native plants have been in our landscape for the last 10,000 years and many of the insects and birds and animals have adapted to their presence for instance you take the white oak Quercus alba. Okay, here's a here's a tree that you can find growing from uh, the swamps of Florida up to northern Maine. And this particular tree, with its nuts and its leaves and its bark, sustains 230 different plants and animals. Uh, a lot of the willows do the same thing. You know, there's a handful of plants, a lot of a, uh, a lot of the birches, and a lot of these native indigenous species have learned to work with many of the insects in order to create a sustainable landscape. And when you start bringing in plants from other, from other continents, you're creating what we call dead zones in the landscape that you're not really feeding the natural world. It looks pretty, but you're not doing anything for the natural world. You're listening to London Lopez at Large on WBAI, New York 99.5 FM. My guest is Pete Morosky, an environmentalist and a nurseryman, and uh, regular on our show. And when he is here, we usually take your calls, but we can't do that right now because the pandemic has changed everything and we're all working from our homes. That means that we don't have uh, the access to the uh, special equipment that uh, we have at our studios. So I, uh, if you have any questions for Pete, please write to me. You can write to me at my email address, leonardlopate at wbai.org. That's, um, well, you know how to spell my name, I hope, L-E-O-N-A-R-D-L-O-P-A-T-E at wbai.org, and I'll read your question on the air. Uh, Pete, uh, I've, uh, you, you mentioned birds. I've, I've read that if the human impact on the environment continues as it has, one-third of all bird species and even greater proportion of bird populations will be gone by the end of the century. So what are some of the things that we can plan that will help the local birds, the, the birds of the Northeast, to survive? 
Well, Leonard, you know, now we're back to this whole native plant concept. And I'll tell a little story that I did uh, tell on you on your show once before, and that is uh, about the gray twig dogwood. Okay, many of our native indigenous shrubs uh, are very important uh, food sources for migrating birds. And you're going to find the gray twig dogwood, which is Cornus rasmosa, growing in fields and meadows from uh, Georgia to Maine. And this shrub, starting about this time of year, has this little pea-shaped uh, uh, fruit on it, and many uh, because it's so full of protein and fat, many of our migrating birds depend on this fruit in order to make that long journey. And as Tellamy said in his first book, if it weren't for the great sweet dogwood, many of our migrating birds wouldn't make it across the Chesapeake Bay. But as we change our landscape and we start bulldozing it and changing it and creating these subdivisions and malls, um, we're getting rid of a lot of this native indigenous plantings and re replacing it with like like what you said with the barberries and 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 euonymus and many of these plants that aren't really giving our native birds that nutritional value they need to sustain themselves on that long migration and that seems to be the big problem right now uh, Wait, the birds don't I, want to eat barberry uh, i know barberry once it's there it kind of takes over a whole area the birds won't eat any of the, any of the uh, whatever it is the the things that grow on a barberry plant. Uh, there, there is a, a red barberry uh, fruit. You know, uh, short of starving to death, Leonard, they will eat it if they can't find uh, the the fruit that they're looking for. But that you know, they're nearly not getting the nutritional value that they need from a lot of the fruits that have sustained their ancestors for thousands and thousands of years. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that eventually, maybe these fr these fruits, maybe the birds will adapt to these fruits. But like uh, Dr. Tellamy said uh, in, in his last book, it may take decades or centuries for these birds and animals to adapt to these fruits in their in their diet so i think that's half the problem right now that many of these um, uh, you know it, many of these fruits and vegetables from plants from another continent aren't really giving our animals and insects uh, the nutritional value they need in, in order to go through their day-to-day -day operation People just love the look of monarch butterflies, but uh, they depend on milkweed. And uh, it seems to me that they're kind of disappearing because people, I, I read, uh, farmers in the Midwest have pulled up a lot of their milkweed, which is, uh, and, and they're part of the migration path of, of uh, butterflies, monarch butterflies, and, and Mexico as well, which is where the, the monarchs tend to winter. Um, so is there any hope for the future? Because I, I have to be honest, I, I, a few years ago, I, I saw a lot more monarchs than I'm seeing just this year. Well, uh, Leonard, you're absolutely right. And I think one of the big major problems is farming practices. 
You know, a lot of these farms now are producing uh, what they're calling Roundup-ready corn. Um, a lot of these fields, uh, when they're sprayed for uh, her herbicides, for, for weeds, uh, so they're not competing with their corn. Uh, you know, and a lot of times they can spray it right over the corn, and, and the Roundup is not killing the corn, but it's killing uh, the weeds below it. And then when it rains... All, all these chemicals are being washed into the hedgerows where all this milkweed grows, and that's what's killing the milkweed. I think what we really need to do is really need to take a close look at our farming practices in this country and become a little bit more environmentally friendly. And that's where this whole permaculture principle comes into play, Leonard, that we were talking about early, earlier. You know, there's, there's ways we can garden and ways we can farm, you know, no-till gardening, uh, crop rotation. You know, there's a lot of things we can do out there to create a healthier uh, uh, landscape and a healthier environment. Uh, but, it, you know, it needs to start now before we start really losing a lot of these birds and insects, uh, you know, in this country. I mean, you look at what's happening over in Europe. I mean, what's happening here in the United States happened in Europe over 50 years ago, where their farming practices were killing many of our birds and many of their insects over there. And, you know, I saw this firsthand uh, about four or five years ago uh, when I was over in Italy. You know, uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an early riser, and I'll get up and I'll take a hike early in the morning up, up in the woods uh, or up in the fields uh, back then in Tuscany and sit on a rock and watch the sun come up, and I could barely hear any birds singing in, in, in the environment. And, and I'm told it's because of, you know, the farming practices in Europe that, you, you know, Europe's been established a little bit longer than North America, so their birds are really having a tough time uh, with, all, with, with this, uh, you know, uh, with these farming practices. And, and I think we can learn from the, from the mistakes that they made over in Europe that we really need to change our farming practices a little bit here if we care anything about wildlife in North America. And a reminder to our listeners, uh, if you would like to join this discussion, uh, we can't take calls right now, but uh, we're happy. I'm happy to read anything you email me uh, on the air, uh, any questions you have for Pete Morosky, uh, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. You mentioned Roundup. A uh, California jury recently ordered Monsanto to pay $2 billion for not warning of cancerous from Roundup. Uh, another jury are, uh, ordered it to pay $289 million to a victim, and a third has awarded hundreds of millions in damages in another case. And yet, um, well, I regularly see commercials for Roundup on the TV uh, with no warnings on them. The, the, when they do pharmaceuticals, they tell you that if you take this drug, you might have a real problem. But uh, the Roundup ads never say anything about the possibility of getting cancer or destroying the environment. Uh, you're obviously not a fan of Roundup. Well, you know, uh, Roundup is, has had the chemical glyphosate in it, okay, and which is the chemical that um, uh, kills uh, the, the weed or the, the target plant. And let me just explain uh, to your listeners how uh, this herbicide work, works. It's a translocator. So when you, when you spray it on the leaf of the plant, it goes from the leaf of the plant 
through uh, through the, the xylem and the phloem and gets down into the roots and ex- and kind of explodes the roots and and kills the plant that way, okay. Uh, but what it does is it has a lot of residual in the soil that it stays in the soil for a very very long time. Now Roundup uh, or Monsanto is not the only company. Uh, that that makes this uh, herbicide. That there are many other companies that make the same herbicide um, uh, that 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 kills a lot of these plants. There are alternative ways of using a herbicide without using the glyco, you know, the, the the main chemical in in Roundup, and that is, you know, you can and you can make a lot of these mixtures at home. You know, there's one mix. Uh, that you can make that uh, has Epsom salt in it, um, that has uh, horticultural vinegar. You put a little lime in it for uh, uh, some more acidity, and you put it in your sprayer, and guess what? It, It works the same way as the Roundup does. In fact, it works a little faster, and then it doesn't doesn't leave any residuals in the soil. So I think there's a couple of things that we have to look at here. We have to look at, you know, the long-term impact of having Roundup in in our soil, and also uh, the um, you know the alternative measures of what we can spray in the soil to take care of a lot of these. These these plants that we want out of the soil, and it can be done with, with a lot of different chemistries. And I think that's what a, what a lot of these pest companies are looking at right now, and that is to eliminate um, you know a lot of these nasty chemicals in in in, in, the, in the Roundup or, or in these herbicides, and, and 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 change the chemistry. Now they're re, they're reluctant to do that because it costs a ton of money to do that. But at the same time, uh, you know, think about all the lawsuits that Monsanto are getting right now, or I should say Bayer, because they're the ones who bought Monsanto. You know, um, billions of just, dollars. What? Billions of dollars. M- millions into billions, yeah. and it doesn't cost that much to put a new chemical on the market. So, you know, if I had to give my suggestion and recommendation. Uh, to, to some of these chemical companies is let's try to find a chemical that's more environmentally friendly that isn't so that isn't so nasty to the environment and and and, and work from there. I mean, it's just it, it, it's a common sense approach to land management land management practices. A friend suggested just diluting lemon juice and spraying that on on some plants, especially vegetables. Is that not a good idea? Um, you, you know, you, you can try anything, you know, I've never tried it, so I, I'm not going to, I, I can't say it is or is going to work, but I can tell you the acidification from a lemon, um, and that's, you know, the whole point of vinegar too, is that the acidification of, of the spray is killing the plant. And, and just remember for all, for all you, your listeners who are going to try to make this concoction, you can go online and find it. The important thing is spray it. Make sure you hit the target spray. Make sure it's not too windy that your your spray drift is growing is is blowing onto plants uh, that are going to be affected by it, and that you clean out your sprayer thoroughly when you're done spraying these chemicals because that acidification that it's killing your plants is also eating the rubber and plastic in your sprayer. So make sure you you, you clean your sprayer real good after you're done spraying this stuff. What do you suggest that we do after we've pulled up weeds? 
Should we uh, just throw them into the woods if there are woods nearby, or do we have to put them, bag them up, and and uh, have them taken off uh, by the sanitation department? Well, you know, Leonard, there's a couple of things we can do. We can put them in the compost pile and let them break down so they become compost for the vegetable garden next year. Or what I started to do in my garden is I got this, like, 20-gallon tub, uh, and I started putting my uh, weeds into that tub and then filling that tub up with water. And in a couple of days, it creates this little... A slurry of 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 fertilized uh, you know water that I reuse on my plants. In other words, plant material breaks down uh, in water and, and can become a fertilizer. You know, it's you know a lot of these plants, uh, are, you know, and leaves and stems are full of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium and micronutrients that came out of the soil. So when they break down in a vat of water after a couple of days and, and then you can strain it out, you've got this great little fertilized water that uh, that you can put in your garden. And, and that reminds me of another story, Leonard, and that is, um, you know, here at the garden center, we have a small pond that's uh, between us and 22 out in front of the garden center. And each year I bring in a whole bunch of hanging plants uh, basically for Mother's Day, uh, that's a big seller early uh, in, in mid-May. And instead of fertilizing many of these uh, flowering uh, baskets uh, or water uh, with, 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 with the water from the well, we, we water them from the water from the pond. And you know what? Every time I grab some water out of the pond, which is loaded with algae and, and all kinds of nutrients, you won't believe the hanging baskets we got this year. They were absolutely beautiful. We had, didn't have to do any fertilizing, and it was all basically from that beautifully rich fertilized water that we're taking out of the pond right in front of the garden center here. So I guess the moral to this story is for any of you gardeners who are lucky enough to have a pond on the property, you know, set up a little pump system and water your vegetable garden or gardens from that pond and you won't have to fertilize. All your fertilizer will come right out of that pond. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. But I'm not gonna cut a single blade of grass My garden will look just like the distant past Before the days of agricultural land Before the time when pebbles turn to sand When I leave this house I'm gonna stay I'm forsaking my comforts to live another way Get my clothes from this mouth to before I get back to Pete Morosky, uh, I want to take a few minutes to ask you to support WBAI. All independent media are experiencing financial difficulties these days because of the pandemic, but because WBAI is a small public radio station that relies completely on the generosity of our listeners, we don't take ads, we don't take funding from foundations or anyone else, we simply ask our listeners to support us. That, that's put us in a particularly difficult position. And that's why we're asking our listeners to please help us out right now by giving uh, at our website, give2wbai.org. That's give and then the number two, wbai.org. Uh, or call 516 620 3602, 516 620 
3602 to do your part in, in keeping WBAI and Lenderthropid at Large on the air. And one great way to support the station and give us the kind of enduring support that we need throughout the year is to become a sustaining member of what we call a BAI buddy. And you can do that by making a monthly contribution of any amount, $10, $15, whatever is comfortable with you. Joining me right now to uh, help fill in some of the details is my executive producer, Jesse Lent. Hi, Jesse. Jesse, are you there? Hi, Leonard. Great yeah. to be here. And isn't it? I am here. Can you hear me, Leonard? Perfectly. Leonard. Hello. I can hear you. I hear ah, you. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Yes, as I was saying, isn't it interesting today to hear Pete Morosky sort of un uninterrupted, uh, other than uh, the occasional ringing phone in the background? Uh, but Pete is uh, someone who has such a deep knowledge, not just of the sort of, if you'll pardon the pun, garden store variety of what a garden store owner and manager would understand, but with Pete, there's also a, a deeper philosophy in play uh, as far as connecting with local ecology, finding ways to, to, to have your garden turn out great without damaging the naturally growing things all around it. You know, normally with listeners calling and with you asking them questions, you know, you don't get to hear this much, Pete. So that's really interesting uh, today. But yes, we are taking this little break to ask you to consider becoming a B, which, as Leonard said, is someone who makes a sustaining monthly contribution of $10 or more uh, deducted from your credit card, your checking account, whatever's easiest for you. Uh, it allows us to continue to bring you these deep dives on subjects a little outside and stream. I can't remember the last time I heard just an hour on gardening uninterrupted on the radio or television. Certainly there are segments on gardening, but not this kind of, of deep dive. You know, there's uh, it's, it's interesting, Leonard, you know, something we're always talking about with the diverse nature of the shows we do here is that w people uh, w we love. You know, to help up. you a sort of continuation of your education every day. Uh, am I breaking up? Uh, you know, we, what, I've said this before. One thing that ties all Leonard Lope listeners together that I've met certainly is the idea that they're still looking to learn something. Uh, and that's what we and me to too. achieve with this show. Yes. And, and me as well. I mean, you know, whether it's Greg Mitchell talking about uh, the beginning and the end, you know, about uh, Hollywood and the atomic bomb or uh, Sam Fetter and, and Susan Stryker and Jen Richards talking about the new Netflix uh, 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 documentary Disclosure Trans Lives on, on screen just as a couple of, of you know, we, we talk about Hollywood or we had uh, Dr. Kiyotis. Joshi talking about white Christian privilege in the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, we, we've done shows recently about physics and about politics and about the structure of media and about the Civil War. We had our history week last last week uh, and, and the ways that the Civil War is still very much with us. But as we all know, education is not cheap. Uh, and no, this kind of 
uh, shall we say, at home learning is becoming the new normal. Uh, it's not really something we see or expect from commercial radio. And that's why it's so important to support WBAI and to support Leonard Lopate at large, because we can't do this without you. Uh, we are 100 percent listener sponsored. And so the way to step up and support us, whether it's by becoming a BAI buddy with a sustaining member of $10 or more a month, or at whatever level you're able to contribute is by going to give to WBAI. That's give then the number two WBAI.org, give to WBAI.org on the web or calling 516 Three six zero two, and whatever level you're able to contribute, if you are able to step up during this pandemic, it is a, as Leonard was saying, it's a time when we really need your help. Yeah, we hope that you will support us in any way that you can. Uh, we understand that times are tough right now for a lot of people, but if you can uh, show your support, whether it's by becoming a BAI buddy or just uh, giving us some lump sum for the moment, or if your membership has uh, has lapsed and you want to renew it, uh, however you can do it, uh, give us that call, 516-620-3602, or go to our website, give to WBAI. Dot org, uh, because uh, we 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 need to plan for the future. We need to know that we're going to be on at the future. I just recently received an email from a uh, publicist who wanted to place uh, one of her clients on the show, and she said, "I wasn't sure whether you people are still on the air." Well, we are alive and kicking and doing great, uh, partly because uh, listeners have come through for us. Uh, and uh, it may, if, in your case, if, yeah, if you I mean, can Leonard, help replace the larger number of listeners who are forced to cancel their buddy memberships because they've lost their jobs or their financial situation changed because of the pandemic, we hope that you'll give us that call now. Jesse? I, yeah, I just think that it's it's such an important point that, you know, we were actually starting to get back on track to just off the air a few months ago we were we were back in business and then this pandemic hit and anyone in public broadcasting or independent media is just really feeling this right now but because uh we were already sort of down on the mat so to speak just starting to get up we were in a particularly precarious spot and We don't like to be in perpetual fun drive mode any more than our listeners yeah. want to hear us uh, constantly doing this drive. But this is the only way for a station like ours, funded 100% by your generosity, to stay on the air. So if the show is important to you, if the idea of independent media is important to you, if if a community radio in the middle of video dial means anything to you, please step up right now. Go to give to WBAI.org on the web, or you can call 516-620-3602. Please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large and from all of us to you. Thank you so much. And thank you, Jesse. And uh, let's get back to Pete Morosky, today's guest here on Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Mr. Morosky is an environmentalist, nursing man, owner of the Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York, which is right alongside the Appalachian Trail. 
interestingly, the Appalachian Trail was in the news this week, but not where you are. Still, uh, the Appalachian Trail uh, is uh, endangered. There are so many things that are endangered these days that we have to be aware of. Leonard, you're absolutely right, and I'll tell you a little bit of story about the Appalachian Trail, because like you said, um, it's a 2,100-mile trail that goes from Georgia to Maine, and if you got on the trail in Georgia and you've reached native landscapes, you're two-thirds of the way there. Now, this year, uh, the, natural, the, uh, the Appalachian Trail Conservancy closed the trail uh, back in February and March and just recently reopened it. Now, um, that's very important to us because we're an Appalachian Trail community. We're called the Harlem Valley Appalachian Trail community up here in Pauling, and we're here as one of 35 trail communities to help the hikers on their way. So what do we do here at Native Landscapes to help the hikers? Uh, we, offer, um, we offer showers, we're a mail drop, uh, we have bathrooms, we have many things that the trail hikers need, we're a mail drop, we have many things that the trail hikers need coming into this area. And you know, another interesting thing that I find on the trail is, you know, the uh, Harlem, the Harlem train line comes right behind the garden center, and right behind the garden center, there's the Appalachian Trail train stop. Now, it's the only train stop on the Appalachian Trail, and uh, you know, f f for a lot of reasons. Uh, number one, um, if you live in New York and you wanted to come up and hike the Appalachian Trail, I mean, what better thing to do in, 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 in this whole pandemic to keep your social distancing than to go out in the woods and hike mm -hmm. in the woods and enjoy this, you know, enjoy the beautiful woods and not be around anybody. I mean, it's become a very popular thing to do. Now, recently they just opened the Appalachian Trail, so it's now reopened and, 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 and people can, can hike it once again. Uh, but, um, you know, we, it, it's, it's one of those things that, um, you know, uh, the, the hikers are just starting to come in again. They're just starting to become comfortable hiking the trail. And why many people didn't hike the trail, like I said, before is because it was closed and because many of the hostiles and many of the areas where you know you resupply were closed so it was tough for the for, for the through hikers uh, unless you were very sustainable uh and, and and what you were carrying to make the whole trip from georgia to maine which is 2100 miles and perhaps a few of them were confused because the president has called it the Tallahatchie Trail. But that's a whole other issue. And we're not going to get into politics today. Uh, meanwhile, uh, you mentioned earlier, you mentioned composting earlier. So I want to get back to the things that uh, the kind of advice that you can give that uh, are really important for our listeners. Uh, and a reminder that if uh, if you're a listener and you want to join the conversation, although we're kind of running out of time, but we've please and write to us on my Facebook page is Leonard Lopate at WBAI.org. Uh, write a question for Pete Morosky. I'll be happy to read it on the air. Uh, as I mentioned, Pete, you, you've, uh, you, you, well, you talked about composting a little while ago and you've recommending, recommended it on some of our previous shows. What are the best things to compost? Can we just take all of our garbage and compost it or are there only certain things that we can choose? Uh, there's only certain things we can choose. Mostly plant-based material is the best material for compost. Uh, we want to stay away from 
uh, any dairy products, any meat products uh, in the compost bin. Uh, you know, for the most part, you know, like for instance, our grass clippings, if you're not putting chemicals on your lawn, is a great compost for our garden because it breaks down really quick and, and, and it feeds the soil. You know, any of the kitchen byproducts that you want to compost and put in the soil. Uh, what about leaf- paper, cardboard? Uh, I would stay away from it because you don't know what's in today's cardboard. A lot of the cardboards come in layers, and some of these layers have plastic in it. Um, I would stay basically with a real natural uh, uh, plant-based compost uh, is, is the best is the best compost for our garden. And you know, many people may not know what compost is all about. Basically, what we're doing is we're feeding the soil. And this is one of the things that I preach all the time, Leonard, when it comes to adding anything to your soil. You know, synthetic fertilizers, no good. They're a quick fix. They just turn our plants into drug addicts, depending on the synthetic <laughs> fertilizers, because it's so, it's so quick reacting. What we want to do is we want to create a fertilizer or a soil amendment that is slow acting, that 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 penetrates or gets into the soil after it rains every time. And the right compost will not only feed the plant, but will create biological activity in the soil. It, it brings the soil to life. And that's so important when it comes to uh, gardening and landscaping. The, 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 the more natural and the more soil biological activity you create in the soil, the stronger the plant becomes. And it's not dependent on a lot of your spraying and a lot of your fertilizer and a lot of your, your pesticide applications. You know, if you do, if you do it correctly, you know, the, the plants can, can uh, maintain themselves with the, right, with the right fertilization, the right soil amendments, and the right compost in the soil to make it grow healthy. Now, I've read that food scraps and yard waste together currently make up more than 28% of what we throw away. Uh, and composting, of course, um, takes care of that because uh, the, we keep those materials out of landfills where they take up space and wind up releasing methane. But how long do we need to keep the, these things composting before they actually turn into something that is usable in a garden? Well, you know, there's there's methods behind composting that that decompose the organic matter quicker. You know, the more air that you give the compost, uh, the quicker it'll break down and become composted uh, manure. For instance, uh, you know, go in with the pitchfork. You know, every property is not too small to have a little area where you can keep uh, your compost. And and basically what you want to do is you want to go over, especially in weather like this where it's really warm and things are breaking down so very quickly, is you go in and you turn it over and get some air into the middle of the, uh, of the compost and it'll break down in less than a year. Um, you know, leaf mold, uh, you know, you talk about putting a lot of stuff in, 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 in our uh, landfills, leaf mold. Uh, which is, you know, uh, the leaf uh, leaves of trees, you know, rather than putting them in bags and putting it at the edge of the road and, and have uh, the town sanitation truck take them, put them in the back of your property and let them decompose. There's more great stuff going on with leaf mulch than anything than anything else. We use leaf mulch all the time when we come into somebody's property to do any planting or, or a landscape renovation. My first question to a lot of my customers is, 
where do you put all your leaves every fall? And that's the direction I had because I get down there a foot or two and, we, and you reach what's just called this black gold and you start digging through this black gold and you'll find this mycorrhizal fungi growing in it. It's just such a great plant, uh, plant soil additive. Remember, I remember years ago, 25, 30 years ago, when I had started this business, we were using peat moss and synthetic fertilizers, but we found out, uh, you know, through the science, thank you, Douglas, telling me, uh, that, you know, we need to be more natural in our gardening approaches because it's not only healthier for the natural, uh, for, for the, for the natural world, but it's also much healthy for, much healthier for us. But isn't keeping old garbage around the house a bit unsanitary? <laughs> well, it, it all depends on what you, you know, what you define as garbage. I mean, this is composted material. We're not talking about, you know, uh, plastic and metal and and and, uh, and 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 garbage like that. We're talking about we're talking about composted material that will break down and and and, and become a good soil additive. Uh, is this also apply to people who only have indoor plants? Because a, a fair number of our listeners uh, are live in apartments, and uh, maybe they have something on their windowsill, but uh, they don't really have a gardening space. Right. Um, I think when it comes to indoor gardening, you know, you can't create a pile of compost on the rug in the living room. But what you can do is uh, you can go down to your local garden center and, you know, buy the bad compost. And depending on what type of indoor plants you have, uh, focus your attention on the type of soils that they want. I mean, there's a lot of there's some, you know, there's a science behind all this. And, you know, for instance, uh, you know, with, with plants that come from the desert, you want them, you want the soil in those containers to drain fairly quickly and that don't have a lot of composted material in it. But for many other of your indoor plants, uh, you know, they want that. And, uh, you know, that slow method of fertilization, I think uh, a lot of people need to understand rather than dumping a whole bunch of fertilizer in the soil, I'm a big fan of frequent light fertilizing when it comes to anything, indoor plants, outdoor plants, our landscape, anything that you maintain that requires a little bit of nutrients, do it sporadically and lightly. And you're going to find that the plant is going to, uh, is really, is really going to respond to that. Pete, we don't have much more time, but I want to talk a bit about the weather because it's been really odd this year, long uh, dry spells, and then suddenly big rainstorms like the one we had uh, the tropical storms, which are coming in early, by the way, uh, la last weekend. Um, how do you uh, keep the plants happy with, with uh, such uh, uneven weather? Is it getting too hot too early, for example? We're, we're in the 90s in much of this area. Well, Leonard, um, you know, as you know, I got, I got a bit of a background in meteorology, and, and um, it's... <laughs> What's happening now is we're going through a period of extremes, okay? Um, as you know, we'll, we'll, like, we'll, you know, we'll start with this winter. If you remember, November and December were very cold, and it started to snow really hard in the beginning of December. And I said to myself, oh, here we go. We're, gonna, we're in for another bad winter. And then 
it just stopped. The rest of the winter was very mild. So the beginning of the winter was very cold and snowy, and then the end of the winter was very warm and, and, and unwinter-like. And if you look at the last two growing seasons, I mean, this is the first real normal growing season we've had in the last three years. Last year was very wet early in the year. The year before was very wet. And it was a horrible year for tomatoes, corn, and anything that really likes a lot of sun and a lot of dry weather. Listen, I'll take, I'll control, the, when it comes to landscaping, I'd much rather control the water than Mother Nature because a lot of times she dumps too much rain on it and things get flooded and things die, you know, because there is that air transfer that goes on between the surface soil and plants. But if you take a summer like this where it's been fairly dry and we're getting a lot of sun and we're getting great growing weather, it doesn't take much for us to water the plants and give them what they need based on a drier season. So in my opinion, we're, we're, this summer is one of the first real normal summers from a weather standpoint we've had in a while. But let's look at this tropical storm. Okay, we had a, little, we had a, we had a bit of a tropical storm come up the coast uh, early in July, which is very uncharacteristic of the tropics. Okay, and not only that, but this thing came right up through New Jersey and right up the Hudson River. And let's be thankful that it didn't slip out over the Atlantic and become a full-blown hurricane before it came up into New York City. Uh, so, uh, but I was expecting a lot more rain out of this. I was looking at this storm, watching it come up the coast and say, you know, we're going to get dumped with one to three inches of rain here. And we needed it. It was very dry before that storm hit. But Pete, it, it, we, we, got, we got a bunch of, suddenly got a bunch of emails and we have no time. But one listener, I'm just going to read a little bit. He says, the only way to grow vegetables in this and most other suburban communities is to join a community garden. Uh, the one he belongs to is surrounded by an eight foot fence and uses organic practices. But he says, buying native plants in most garden centers he's tried, they, they don't carry native species since they, they, they don't sell. For example, he hasn't been able to find hay scented ferns, a bone set, Appalachian sedge, phlox, macalada, etc. Uh, you, you got 30 seconds to answer. Well, you know, he needs to go to his garden centers and say, hey, listen, if you want me to buy from you, you've got you to supply some of these plants. Here at Native Landscapes, we follow the American Beauty Program, which brings a lot of native plants. I'm finding more and more garden centers are getting on board. Uh, Rosedale Nursery in Westchester County. I know there's a lot of garden centers out in Long Island that are starting to supply native plants. In New Jersey, I'm starting to see a lot of native plant growers. I mean, it's happening. It's a slow process. But it's here, and it's and it's and you're going to start seeing these plants more and more in these local garden centers, especially if you start asking for them. And Pete, thank you so much. Uh, we'll see you real soon. Pete Moroski is the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out our show pages on Facebook and Twitter. You can also visit our website, LeonardLopinAtLarge.com, where you'll find links to all of our past shows. And if you'd like to send me comments about any of our shows, you can reach me by email at the address I've been giving out, LeonardLopinAtWBAI.org. As I mentioned before, BAI is currently experiencing major financial difficulties due to the pandemic, and we're asking anyone who isn't already supporting the station to please go to our website, give to WBAI.org, or call 
3602. We're off for the next couple of days, but I hope you can join us on Friday when economist Jeffrey Sachs will discuss his latest book, The Ages of Globalization, Geography, Technology, and Institutions. We'll see you then.